Good morning, church family. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Uh, the, you can, if you don't have your Bible today, you can get one of the ones out of the seat back in front of you and look on page 438. And please feel free to take that Bible home with you today, our gift to you if you do not have one. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of grace that your word contains. Thank you for the wide open door for those who will just simply put their trust in you to be accepted by you. And Lord, we thank you for that. There's not a true believer in this room today who hasn't come to you filthy, stained, corrupted by sin, who you have not washed clean and made your own. And so we thank you for that, Lord, as we were reminded by your word of your great mercy. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just awaken us to hear your word, to begin to reorganize, reorient our life around your word, that we would submit to it, and that with our lives, with our actions, with our attentiveness to your word, we would be declaring that you are Lord. And so we thank you for that. Lord, I pray for help for myself. Lord, that I would tremble before your word and that you would empower me to speak it accurately and clearly, Lord. Thank you for all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So... One of my favorite things to do at Northridge Life is begin new series. And we are beginning a new series. So what we're doing is um, we are going to uh, take you through the, the final 12 books of the Old Testament, commonly known as the Minor Prophets. Where's the hallelujah? Where's the amen? Come on. I, some of you didn't even know those books were in the Bible, admit it. So well, we're going to take you through each one. They are commonly referred to as the minor prophets, but they're not minor because they're of any lesser importance than other portions of Scripture, but because they're generally shorter than the major prophets, which includes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And we typically know less about the authors of these books historically. And so each week what we're going to do, um, we're not going to do what we normally do, which is just wring those passages out. What we're going to do is we're going to give you kind of a bird's eye view of each book. And our hope would be that 
that when you uh, hear these messages, that you'll go back and explore the, the deeper contents of the books um, you know, more thoroughly. So what we're going to try to do is explore the major themes of each book and see how they point to Jesus and his gospel. Did you know that for every page of the Old Testament, you can find Jesus? That's a good thing. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament points to Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And our hope this morning, beginning this series, is that we can prove that to you. From the, probably some of the most neglected books in the entire Bible by most of the church. And so uh, also just a real quick note. Oddly enough, there are 12 of these books. We're going to skip one of them, which we're going to skip Jonah. Not because we're picking on poor little Jonah, but because we did a pretty thorough uh, examination of that book last year. I think we did four or five weeks on that. So uh, when we get up to Jonah, if you want to hear what we said, you can go to our church's podcast page and quickly find those. uh, So you can kind of hear our take on Jonah. Um, Let's talk about Hosea for just a minute. His name literally means salvation. Now, if you know much about Hebrew, his name is is essentially the same name as Joshua, which is actually the same name as Yeshua, which is the Aramaic name of Jesus. And and, uh, Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel as opposed to the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, you might remember that after the reign of Solomon, there is this split in the kingdom. And there's ten of the tribes in the north become the kingdom of Israel. The two tribes in the south become the kingdom of Judah. And he refers to the kingdom of Israel. When he's referring to it, he, he calls it Ephraim. And he does that 32 times in his letter. That might seem kind of strange to you if you're not familiar with this. But Ephraim was the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. And so therefore, referring to Ephraim when he says, you know, God says this to Ephraim or that to Ephraim, what he's doing is he is implying the entire nation. Now, I tried to think this through and it's kind of like if, if we have a military conflict and, and you hear on the news that Washington DC is sending troops to this nation or that nation. It, the the fact that Washington DC is the one that is being said is doing the action implies all 50 states, correct? Because that's the head of the of the nation. So Hosea was a prophet sometime between 750 BC, there won't be a test, don't worry. Um, between 750 BC and 687 BC, and we know this because of the dates of the reigns of the kings that he refers to in the introduction of his work. His ministry, in particular, he's, remember he's northern kingdom, it, it occurred during the, the reign of Jeroboam II uh, of Israel. Now the reign of Jeroboam II was one that can only be described uh, as a, a reign of contrast. And what I mean by that was the reign of Jeroboam II, the nation of Israel experienced its greatest period of economic prosperity and political security. But it was also, at the same time, as, as everything looked to be going very well, it was mired in idolatry and it was guilty of practicing this syncretistic uh, religion. And what I mean by that is they would combine the worship of Baal and, and the worship of Yahweh. And, and Yahweh's acts and gifts, the things that God had done for the nation, would turn, they would turn around and attribute those to Baal. 
And, and, and the, the, the Baals, there was actually several of them, it wasn't just one God. The Baals were, were worshipped in ways that had been reserved for Yahweh alone. So what they took is they took this pagan worship, this Canaanite, you know, uh, idolatry, and they combined it with the worship of God. And this led to God's judgment on the nation of Israel. The days after the death of Jeroboam II were days of absolute national chaos. For example, Israel, after the death of Jeroboam, had six kings within a period of 25 to 30 years. Four of those kings were assassinated in acts of political intrigue. It was a scary time to live in the nation of Israel. They had constant war with their neighbors. And all of this reached a climax in 722 BC when the Israelites were defeated and dispersed by the Assyrian Empire. And to this day, the ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom are referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel. And the reason is because they became assimilated into Assyrian culture and they lost all Jewish distinctiveness whatsoever. They just kind of melded into the Assyrian Empire and no one knows what happened to him? No one stands up and say, hey, I'm from the tribe of Reuben. I'm from the tribe of Ephraim. Those guys are just gone to history. So Hosea prophesies right before this tragic conclusion. And his theme of the book is, is, is this. Israel has been unfaithful. And because they have been unfaithful, they must be judged. And so God spends 11 of the 14 chapters of Hosea in this kind of poetic it's almost like he's, he's presenting it like a trial, this poetic laying out of a case for the justice of Israel's impending doom. He says they are going to receive justice and this is why. And he lists that, lists that out for 11 solid chapters. And in this, he uses a lot of word pictures and a lot of analogies. He depicts Israel as a promiscuous wife as an indifferent mother, as an illegitimate child, as an ungrateful son, as well as a stubborn heifer. What an attractive thing that is to be called. As a silly dove. He calls him a luxuriant vine, and that sounds kind of nice, but he says that they turn to more and more idolatry the more and more they are blessed. He says they're wild grapes that God found in the wilderness. And so God bluntly says in this book, in one of the most troubling portions, he says that Israel will receive no mercy. And reversing the language of the Levitical covenant that established them as a people, he says they will not be his people. No mercy, not my people. Because they've abandoned him, they've broken faith, they've broken covenant with their God. And yet... In spite of all this, this is why I'm encouraging you to read Hosea. I haven't given you a lot of reason yet, because it sounds pretty depressing, doesn't it? But in, the, in throughout Hosea, there are these explosions, these flashes of grace that are sprinkled throughout the book. There are clear messages that God himself will one day rescue and redeem his people, that he will restore their fortune, fortunes and that he will return to them for their blessing. So... Got all that all the way. Let's talk about the book. Hosea begins with three chapters of biographical narrative concerning God's dealings with Hosea. Now, this is important because these three chapters set up the, the whole framework of everything God is going to say to his people. So we're going to focus on those three chapters today. 
So Hosea, this prophet minding his own business, is commanded to live out a drama for the people listening to him, the people that he will be speaking to, so that they will fully understand God's grievances against them. This is what God says, Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, he says, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now listen, think about this. God tells Hosea to take a wife whose main characteristic is, like we sang today, that she is prone to wander. She is guaranteed by God to Hosea, she is guaranteed to be unfaithful to her marriage vows. Who would want a marriage like that? It's a terrible way to start a, a, a life together. And Hosea is, is considering these things and he can only expect heartbreak from this bride that God tells him to take. Now, let me just pause again and tell you that many of you have probably heard, and maybe even if you've never looked into the book of Hosea or heard anybody preach on the book of Hosea, just because of the wording of this first couple of uh, passages or scriptures, you might think this. Many of you probably heard that God commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. However, a careful reading of this text does not indicate that. The word whoredom that we, that we see can relate to a variety of sexual misconduct. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Because the text actually seems to indicate that when Hosea married Gomer, she was chaste and she was faithful uh, when she married him. But in chapter 1, we're told that she bore him a son. That's the language of the book. She bore him a son. But later it says that she has two other children who the, the, the same type of language is not there. It just says she bore a daughter. She bore a son. And so Hosea seems to be out of the picture. There seems to be some adultery involved. In, in the birth of the two subsequent children. These children do not seem to come from Hosea. So in Gomer's case, this is, this is what I want you to see, because it's really important to the point of this book. In Gomer's case, the point was not that she was a prostitute, but that she would act like one. And that's important to the point of the story. She would take other lovers, and she would stray from her home with, with Hosea. So God was leading Hosea in this bizarre way, this bizarre ministry that God had handed to him, and he was doing it to paint a vivid picture for his people of how they were treating him, how they were rejecting him, how they were pursuing other gods as though they were other lovers like Baal. Now in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and of course here in Hosea, the prophets use the imagery of God as a faithful husband. And, and they set up this imagery as, as he is the one, the faithful husband who carried his bride, Israel, out of Egypt where she was enslaved. And he, he brought her out into the wilderness to be in, uh, uh, betrothed to him forever. But just like Gomer in the story of Hosea, Israel pursued other loves and they went after all kinds of idols and, and surrendered themselves to all kinds 
kinds of false deities. And they did this over and over and over again. And just like Hosea knew because God told him that Gomer was going to be unfaithful, the God who knows everything knew that his bride was going to wander as well. And yet, think about this, what it says about our God. And yet, God called her to himself anyway. And he gave her, he he went after her, he called her to have her as his own people. Now listen, Jeremiah says this. So this, this great relationship has been formulated. God has called Israel this, this little nation. It wasn't the most powerful or the, you know, most talented nation. And God calls them to be his bride. And then this is what Jeremiah says in his own accusation. He says, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? And yet my people, God speaking, have forgotten me days without number. The sin of forgetting God was the cause of their separation from them. It wasn't that God got bored with them or tired of them. He says that in Isaiah. He says, thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? He's saying, look, I didn't do this. This isn't my fault. He says, behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So in turning to idols, to the worship of Baal and other Canaanite deities, the Israelites were forsaking God, the perfect husband, and committing spiritual adultery, breaking covenant, and being unfaithful to their vows at Mount Sinai. What, what vow am I talking about? Well, you guys remember when the law was given, they're all gathered around Mount Sinai. And the Bible tells us in Exodus 24, then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now watch this. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. You think it turned out that way? See, before they even made it to the promised land, during the time of their wandering, They'd broken faith over and over again by grumbling, complaining, serving idols, engaging in all kinds of sexual immorality. And speaking of sexual immorality, sometimes in the ancient religions of the Canaanite world, the line between spiritual adultery and sexual immorality, actual sexual immorality, were often blurred to the point where there was no distinction at all. So, for example, a big part of Baalism uh, was ritual prostitution. Baal was a fertility god. And so temple prostitutes would sell themselves in an act of imitative magic. They were, they were, it was like they were doing this, this uh, painting this picture of what they hoped Baal would do. In fact, as they paid the prostitute for services rendered, the customers would chant this. They would say, I beseech the goddess Ashtoreth to favor you and for Baal to favor favor me. It was easy. Now, this is what I want you to see. It's easy for us to hear all these historical details, to look at the Israelites and to become arrogant in our religion. Just kind of get disgusted. Can't believe they would do things like that. We know, I mean, look around the room. We know that nobody in here would ever bow a knee to a pagan deity. We'd rather die. And we would certainly not engage in cult prostitution. The very thought is horrific to us. But before you let yourself off the hook too soon, listen to the words 
of James in the New Testament, not the Old Testament. James says this, you adulterous people, ouch. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. See, James isn't writing to Iron Age pagans here. Think about that. He's not saying, I want to tell you what happened in Hosea's day. It was terrible. No. He's writing to those who are gathering with the church for worship who are gathering with the church for the word, who are gathering with the church around the sacraments. Israel fell to idolatry and sexual sin, and James is telling us that this remains a clear and present danger for professing Christians today as well. Israel mixed the worship of Baal with the, with the worship rather of Yahweh. And in so doing, they were rightly accused by God in the book of Hosea of spiritual adultery. And James says that those who pursue what the world is offering nullify their profession of faith. Now that may sound harsh, but what do you think it means when he says they become the enemy of God? They're nullifying any credibility that their profession of faith has when they try to mix, like they mix Baal worship with Yahweh worship. When we try to mix the gospel of Jesus Christ with worldliness, we're doing the same thing. We're becoming an enemy of God and we're nullifying our profession of faith. This is what it means to be the enemy of God. Israel fell under the harshest of judgments because she played the whore against her husband, the Lord. Do we think... That in our version, that we will get off scot-free for committing the same crimes. Hosea said this to his people. He said, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Well, what does the New Testament say to us? Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing rather seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath wrath and fury. Listen, God will not share a marriage with anybody. Do you hear me? God will not share. He is, he is, he is uh, solely dedicated to his bride and he does not want his bride pursuing other things, whether it's Iron Age Baalism or whether it's modern day worldliness. You cannot feel safe. It would be a dereliction of my duty if I told you anything else as a pastor. You cannot feel safe if you mix worldliness with your religion. God was saying through Hosea that he wanted a bride that he could know and a bride that he could love. One that would know and love him back and nothing has changed. What God desires is a people whose hearts are devoted and whose actions reflect that devotion. Now, there is the rub. That's the problem with all of us. 100%. 
See, none of us are naturally like that. Consistent. Following through with what we say we want from God or or what God is to us. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned, that all of us have strayed from God like stupid sheep. We're told that none of us are righteous and that none of us even seek after God on our own. And we need help. Now listen, I know who I'm talking to. I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to every one of you. You may have been that good little girl who got all the questions right in Sunday school. You may have been that perfect little gentleman that always got his cheeks pinched, who had all the gold stars on his chart. You might have been any of those things, but at your core, you, like me, are a spiritual adulterer with a wandering eye and a straying heart. So there may be some swelling of fence at me saying something so harsh and so dramatic, but I'm just going to appeal to the meme and ask you to prove me wrong. Prove me wrong, or rather yet, prove the Bible wrong. Let me ask you a series of questions. Have you, and, and by the way, you can ask me the same questions. Have you... This week, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Have you at some point been compelled to defend your reputation, your position in life? How much have you been tempted to revel in comfort that took you out of the fight? Have you taken up this week petty offenses? Have you ignored the brokenhearted, the poor, or the oppressed? Let's get a little bit more personal this morning. What hatred, what unforgiveness is currently being harbored in your heart right now? To whom have your lustful desires been directed Who have you cheated? Who have you gossiped about or slandered? What have you laughed about that you would be ashamed if the Lord were to physically appear before you that you had laughed about those things? Listen to me. This is my point. Not that some of you are good and some of you are bad. This is my point. We are all spiritual adulterers. All of us. We pursue other loves and we flee from our true husband. But what I want you to know is, I'm not here to beat you up because here's the whole reason I put this message together. Because there's good news for people like us right here in the book of Hosea. Great news for us right here. And this is it. God is a pursuer. God is the kind of God that in the middle of all our straying, in all of our, like we sang this morning, our proneness to wander, God comes after us. If we're His, God does not let us wander off too far. He comes after us. In the portion of Hosea we read this morning, God told Hosea, Go again. Again's a good word. Go again. And love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress. 
Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Don't get too hung up on cakes of raisins. Might make you hungry or something. But cakes of raisins has to do with Baal worship. And, and uh, some uh, even scholars think it might have been some sort of weird aphrodisiac or something like that. But Hosea, this is what I want you to understand. God's saying, go again, find this woman. Hosea had given Gomer a home. He'd given her food. He'd given her shelter. He'd given his love. But she left. She said, I've got everything I want, but not everything. I've got everything I need, but not everything I want. I'm out of here. And God says to Hosea, he doesn't put his arm around him and say, man, I'm so sorry, Hosea, that, that stinks. He says, go get her. Go get her back. So my question to you, with all of those accusations I laid out earlier, my question to you is, have you wandered? Have you strayed? I have got wonderful news for you this morning. God wants you back. God wants you back. And I'm not talking about some insecure version of salvation where you rededicate your life for the thousandth time. Because when we do that, that just puts way too much emphasis on us and our work and our vows and our promises. And I promise you, if you rededicate your life this morning for a thousandth time, next week you'll do it for the thousand and first time, right? Anybody been trapped in that cycle before? But listen to what I'm telling you. I'm saying, please listen carefully. This is a lot different than just appealing to you to rededicate your life in some vow you're making to God. I am saying to you right now that in your mess, in your brokenness, return to the one who loves you and wants you and is willing to recreate you as his spotless bride. God is not waiting impatiently for you to clean up your act. Instead, He's waiting for you to come to Him absolutely filthy so that He can clean you up. It's a huge difference. This is not about morality. This is not about you being a better you. It's about placing your trust in the one who loves you, is pursuing you, and can transform you if you, if you surrender to him. That's what the gospel's about. That's the gospel. Listen what Hosea says in response to what God told him. So I bought her. Fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. Don't miss what's happening here. Gomer had gone from being Hosea's beloved wife to being a common street-walking whore. And in spite of that fact, Hosea goes to her pimp and says, How much I want her back. Oh man, church, please... For the sake of everything that is holy, open your eyes and see what Jesus has done for you through his gospel. You are not saved because something you did or decided. You are saved because of something Jesus did. 
First Peter 1.18 says, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. What is that telling us? It's telling us that Jesus came looking for you. When you were owned by the sin that you had played the harlot with, Jesus said, How much? I want her back. How much will it cost me to appease the just wrath of God for all of her sinning? And make no mistake about it, the price was absolutely everything. Nothing was held back. His glory that he'd had for all eternity would be veiled in humanity, and while veiled, he would be beaten and he would be killed. Even in Hosea, you can hear the breaking heart of God longing for His people. He says in Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, which was a place of bloody uh, judgment. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt and in that day declares the Lord you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal but it wouldn't but it would only rather be through Christ not through some old covenant observance that this would all come to pass it was through Christ and, and, and that's how the Son of God would have a bride presented to Him now without blemish or with stain of sin only because of grace. Ephesians 2 describes this for us so beautifully. It says, remember, man, that's a good thing to do. I hope you can do it this morning. Just remember, just close your eyes, take yourself back however long ago and remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ. Does anybody in this room remember what it was like to be separated from Christ? You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, but now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That word now, but now, it's so beautiful. What Gomer, Hosea, and the people of Israel could not have ever imagined is now our reality. We were far away because of our adultery, our wandering, our straying, but we have been brought near. Listen, the Bible says you have been brought near. You have not come near. You didn't struggle your way up to Jesus. Jesus came and got you and brought you near. I love the prophetic way that the passage Jen read us ends. It says, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear of the Lord or to the Lord, and to His goodness in the latter days. These lost tribes would be found again. 
those of us who were Gentiles would be grafted into the vine of Israel because something that is coming is going to change everything. We who have wandered will seek the Lord and we will seek David our king. Now what does that mean? Well listen, Jesus came forth as the promised son of David who would sit on his throne and reign there forever. And he has fulfilled this promise when he ascended to the Father as the man, Jesus Christ. And he will never be dethroned. The son of David, Jesus the Lord, reigns forever. And now because of what the son of David has accomplished, we can freely come before God in reverent fear and enjoy his goodness as Hosea promised or or as he prophesied. We don't have to wander any longer. We can be brought near by the Lord and and in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our, our frailty, we can belong to God and live in the peace and goodness of the Lord. God goes after the ones he loves. Even in their straying, he will seek you out. He will pursue you. So what should that encourage you and I to do? Just wander no more. You have a home. You have a perfect husband. There is nothing out there that's better than what the Lord has given you. Stay home. Stay home, return to your husband and be blessed. And who is our husband? Well, Isaiah tells us, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess this morning our wandering. We confess our unfaithfulness. Lord, as hard as it is to choke out the words, we confess our adultery. And Lord, as we remember our proneness to wander, Lord, we we remember what we sang this morning. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. We thank you for that, Lord God. Lord, we pray that you would find us in our wildernesses and allure us to draw us back to open the storehouse of your blessing through Christ to us again so that we would pledge our love to our husband and that we would live devoted to him. We thank you for all of this, Jesus. Amen. Amen. That's a good word. And if you guys would stand with me, um, place your hands in a receiving position, I'm going to pronounce a benediction over you. It's a really, really long one, so get ready. All right, ready? Here, here we go. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen.